Good morning. I'm glad to be with you today. My name is Richard, and it's been a great privilege to be with this group all weekend long. And those of you who haven't been here, I'm sorry, but I'm glad to see you this morning. Uh, the scripture for the sermon today is from Matthew chapter 6. It's the part of the Bible that we actually recited earlier in the service. We often call it the Lord's Prayer. But in Matthew chapter 6, on page 811, in the Bibles in front of you, is the passage we're going to talk about this morning in the sermon. Let me read it to you, please, beginning Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither your Father will forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we bow before you, having heard these words you spoke to your disciples thousands of years ago. And we bow before you now, because we call no one our teacher but you. We trust no one the way we trust you. We hope in no one like we hope in you. And we long to see no one like we long to see you. And so we're praying now that you will send Holy Spirit to us, that he will fill each heart in this room, that we may see and hear the truth that you will give us today, so that we may be set free and serve you more faithfully. And as you do that, we'll give you the thanks for it. Amen. I, I think everybody here will agree with me that any time you have a big project, and I mean a big one, you always start off with some kind of vision or some kind of dream of what you're trying to accomplish. And if that dream is not big enough, if it can't get down inside of you, then when the hard times come, and they always come with a big project, when the hard times come, if, you're, if your vision is not big enough and not deep down inside, then it's really easy to give up on it, at least to become mediocre about it and just sort of set it to the side. In many ways, that's the way it is in everyday life. I mean, I can remember when my wife and I first got married, like many of you, you probably looked at each other and you said, sweetheart, we may not have money to pay the rent, but I got you, babe, and that's all I really need. <laughs> now, that's a vision for what marriage is. Not a very big one. And about six weeks later, you find out you have to pay the rent as well as love each other, right? So when we think about big projects in life, you need a big vision. And that's the way it is for this project that we call following Jesus. Jesus has given people who follow him a big project. It's what Christians call the mission. It's the mission that Jesus put us on. And you could summarize that mission in many different ways, but let's just do it this way. Jesus has given us the mission of making sure that everybody in the whole world hears about him. Now that's our mission, and it's a big one. And if you don't have a very big vision to go along with that project, then as you get involved in it, 
and hard times come, it's easy to sort of set it to the side, lose heart for it, even sometimes to give up and just live your own little private life just like everybody else does. Well, where do you find that kind of vision? I mean one that's that big, one that gets down inside of you so much that it compels you through your life, and not just your life, but it will compel your children through their lives and their children after them and generations to come. Where do you find that kind of vision? Well, you can find it in lots of places in the Bible because the Bible sums it up in different ways in different spots. But the place I want us to think about this morning and to look is in this passage that we just read called the Lord's Prayer. Now, you know when you pray, you know that it's when important things are going on. A big problem, something really exciting is happening, and you may not pray normally any time at all, but when something big happens, you find yourself praying. Well, that lets us know something here. Jesus is not just telling us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He's telling us what's important to him and what ought to be important to you and me. What should be top priority for the vision of our lives? But as I go around talking to different Christian people around the world, I've discovered something about myself and about them, and probably about you too. And that is that, yeah, you do find your vision for your life in something like the Lord's Prayer, but when you think about that prayer, usually we find our orientation in life in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. The bottom half. You know how it goes. Give us this day our daily bread, which basically means, please take care of me. Forgive us our debts, which means, I'm sorry, I did it again. I'm sorry, I really am. And lead us not into temptation, which basically means, help me do better tomorrow than I did today. If that's where you are, if that's what your life is about, being taken care of by God, depending on Him, finding forgiveness in Jesus, doing better tomorrow than you did today, if that's your vision for your life, way to go. You're far ahead of most people in the world. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you know exactly what I mean. Most people live in this world without any reason at all, without any vision for life at all, nothing at all that's compelling for them and their children and their children beyond them. Rather, they just bounce around from one thing to the next. That's the way most people in the world live. So if you get your vision out of that bottom half of the Lord's Prayer, great. I'm proud of you. Be pleased. But I don't think that's where the really big vision is found in the Lord's Prayer. Not in the bottom half. It's found in the top half. And you know how it goes, too, because it's the part you go through real fast so you can get down to something that means something to you. Give us this day our daily bread. You know that first half, don't you? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can see the difference because the bottom half, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not in temptation. The bottom half's all about us. No wonder we like it so much. But the top half, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about God. And that's where the big vision is. Let's take a look at it. I think that when you start thinking about these words that Jesus gives us at the top of the Lord's Prayer, it challenges us to have to do some adjusting, some changing, 
changing the ways that we believe about certain things, changes in the ways we feel about them, even changes in the ways we behave toward them. And the first thing that Jesus challenges you and me to change, it's really not all that surprising, is to change what we believe about God. Hmm. You know how it begins. Our Father. Ah, now those are precious words to Christian people. And we all know what that means. I mean, this is what Christians believe. We actually believe that the one who made everything, I mean he made everything, the greatest galaxies out there, the immeasurable extent of the universe, God who made everything can become your personal spiritual father. That he can know you by name, that he can care for you, that he can protect you, that he can be yours and you can be his. You know, the Bible says that to as many as receive Jesus, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. And that's a precious truth that Christians understand and have experienced, that when they come to Jesus, God becomes their father. But you know as well as I do that when most, especially American Christians, hear those words, our father, there's an image that comes to our mind. It's not exactly what Jesus had in mind, but it's an image that comes to our mind, and it goes something like this. God's in heaven, he's got this long white beard, and he's sitting up in heaven on his celestial rocking chair. He's your big granddaddy up there. And he's rocking back and forth on his rocking chair up there in heaven. He's looking down on the earth and wringing his hands like this. And he's saying to himself, oh, I wish my children on the earth would just pay more attention to me in what I've said. Because if they would just pay attention to me, they'd be so much happier. And you know, I'd be happier too. Because after all, I exist for them. That's the way most American Christians think about God. That he's like a sweet granddaddy. Now, I know what a sweet granddaddy is. I am one. I'm one of the sweetest ones in the world. I have three grandchildren who love me, and they adore me too. But I'm no fool. I know exactly why. I know exactly why they love me so much. It's because when they were little, every time I saw them, I'd hug them really big, and I'd say, I love you so much. And then the next thing I would say every single time was this. Do you want to go to Toys R Us now? <laughs> And I'd take them and I'd buy them whatever they wanted. I don't care why they love me. I just want them to love me. I'll do whatever it takes. And every grandfather in the room knows what that means. Because that's what sweet granddaddies are like. Well, I have good news for you. That's not what Jesus had in mind. And we get the first clue of this by the fact that he doesn't just say, pray our Father. He says, pray our Father in heaven. And if you know the Bible, you know that everywhere the Bible describes heaven, it describes it in the same way. It's not the place where God's rocking chair is. It's the place where God's throne is. It's the place where God reigns as the king of the universe. It's where he's surrounded by myriads and myriads of creatures who are crying out day and night, holy, 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 hallowed be your name. You see, that's what Jesus has in mind here. That vision of God. God as the king in heaven. In fact, it might surprise you to know this, but in the Bible and outside of the Bible, in other cultures as well, in the days of the Old and the New Testaments, it was very common for people to describe their human kings, just ordinary human kings, as their fathers. Our king, our father. And so when Jesus says, pray our father in heaven, this is what he's telling us to pray. Pray our royal father. 
enthroned in heaven. May your name be kept holy. And that tells us something about our faith. The number one way that the Bible reveals God to us is that he is our king. And that's a huge problem for you and me. Because we don't have a clue what that might mean. We, we, we are Americans, right? We don't have kings ruling over us. What would that mean to have somebody who holds your life and your death in his hands and can do with you what he wants? Do you know why we don't like human kings? It's because they're just terribly inconvenient to have around. Because human kings have these weird ideas. These weird ideas like their agenda is more important than yours. That their pleasure is more important than yours. That somehow your life is not as significant as their lives. And that you ought to be willing, in fact, you ought to be happy to serve them. They're so glorious. And even more than that, you ought to be happy to die for your king. Because after all, he's your king. And when you have people around that believe that about themselves, they're terribly inconvenient to have around. They get in the way of you living your own life. And I know what Arizonans are like. You want to live your life. And you want to live your life in freedom. And that, my friends, is just the opposite of what it means to have God as your king. I think the fact that human kings are so inconvenient and that's why we don't like them, I think that tells us something. If your religion has become convenient, and by that I mean it's just something that really never challenges you to change anymore, you like the way things are in your faith and you're good with that, you're just going to go on day after day living life the way you've lived it, that the Bible never challenges you to change your life anymore, that you're not open to something really different happening in your life, I think that tells us something. I think it tells us that maybe, just maybe, we still don't know what it means to say that God is our king. Because kings are not convenient. But that's where the big vision begins. Don't you know that he made you? Don't you know that he gave you every breath you've ever taken? Don't you know, if you are in Jesus, that he bought you with the price of his own son's blood? He owns you and me, lock, stock, and barrel. He owns us, not just a few moments a week, not just on Sunday, he owns us every moment of every day. It all belongs to him because he is our king. Has your faith become convenient? You'll never be a part of the mission if that's what's happened to you. So yeah, I think that the beginning point of having a big enough vision to compel you through your whole life in service to God is to realize he's your king. But you know, I think we have some adjusting to do in the ways we think about God when it comes to this thing called the mission, but we have some other adjusting to do too. There's a second thing that Jesus calls us to adjust or to change in the opening of the Lord's Prayer. It's going to sound strange, but let me say it anyway. He challenges us to change the way we think about the earth life on this planet, the life you and I are living right now. 
You know he does that. Remember what he says? Our Father, our royal Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. What's next? May your kingdom come. You see, I told you he's thinking of God as king, our Father. May your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. I want you to notice something about what Jesus says here. He says he wants God's kingdom to come. Now, you know, if you've been around Christian people, you know Christians talk that way a lot. Oh, when the kingdom comes. Oh, yes, this is for the kingdom. It's one of those religious phrases we use, and usually we don't have any idea what it means. I grew up in a family where my grandmother used the expression, when the kingdom comes, all the time. It was wonderful. Every time we wanted more ice cream or we wanted more dessert, we'd go to her and say, Mama, can we have some more ice cream? And she would say, sure, when the kingdom comes. (laughs) Now, we learned very quickly what that meant was, no, never, get out of here, you're bothering me. So that's what I think when I think when the kingdom comes. I don't know, what, what comes to your mind when the kingdom comes? Some people think, well, it means the kingdom comes to my heart. Oh, it means that good things will happen. But listen to what Jesus says. May your kingdom come. What's that mean, Jesus? He tells us right away. May your will be done. Okay, I can get that. I can get the idea that God is the king and his kingdom really is where people do his will, where things go the way he wants them to go. But Jesus, where do you want that to happen? Listen to what he says. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's just the opposite of what most of us believe. If we had written those verses, this is what we would say. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in heaven, because that's where we're going to spend eternity, and we really want it to be nice up there, a lot nicer than it's been down here. But that's not what Jesus said. The destiny of God's kingdom is not heaven. For Jesus, the destiny of God's kingdom is the earth. In fact, heaven's not the destiny or the goal of the kingdom. It's the standard of the kingdom. May your will be done down here like it's already being done up there. Well, how is God's will done up there? Well, when you read the Bible again, you see that when creatures are in the throne room of God, they do not dare disobey him. I mean, even the devil does what God says when he's before the blinding light of God's glory in the heavenly realms. But, of course, when he leaves, he does what he wants to do, just like you and I do. Well, Jesus' vision, Jesus' dream for all of history, Jesus' goal for it all, the purpose of his mission was to see that what's true in heaven now will be true down here on this planet. And until that happens, the mission is not completed. Now... You know, we live in a day today where if you have any sense of what American culture has been and where it's going, you can get a very strong impression that Christian faith is not doing very well here. Well, it isn't doing very well here. It's certainly true. And that we look around ourselves and we see people celebrating more openly and more vivaciously, defying God, rebelling against Him, and calling it good. We see it all around us, happening all around us. And so we can get discouraged And we can think to ourselves, you know, the only hope 
that followers of Jesus can have is just to hold on and get out of here one day and go to heaven. That that's our greatest dream, our greatest hope. We just may as well forget things down here. It's a lost cause. But I want you to remember what the world was like when Jesus said these words. It was one man, a couple of hundred followers, in one corner of the earth, and everyone else throughout the entire world was in rebellion against God. So vile, so depraved, we cannot even imagine what their lives were like. That was what the condition of the whole world was. But Jesus told his disciples, this must be your vision and your dream, that the world, the whole world, will become the kingdom of God. And now you and I live 2,000 years later, where we can look back on these 2,000 years, and we can say, my goodness, look at how much Jesus has actually influenced the world, how much he has changed the world. How much Holy Spirit has spread the good news of Jesus around the world. Look around us and notice that there are no longer a few hundred people following this man, Jesus. There are literally millions and millions, perhaps as much as a billion, of these people following Jesus today in the world. Now, we look in our own backyard and we say, it's not going so well. But lift your eyes up. It's going very well. The kingdom of God is coming to earth as it is in heaven. And so this should not be a hard thing for us to believe. This should be, compared to what the disciples were hearing, a very easy thing for us to believe. He's been proving that he has the power to do this for 2,000 years. Can you believe that? Can you believe that it's not just whistling in the dark, to say that God's kingdom will come and that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Can you believe that you should not have as your highest dream escaping this planet and going into the heavenly realms, but rather that your greatest vision should be that the world will become the kingdom of God? Think about it this way. Imagine you ask this question of an unbeliever. Now, I mean somebody that you know does not love Jesus, okay? I mean, you're sure that this person doesn't love Christ, and you ask this person this question. What would be a good life? I mean, what would be the kind of life you would be glad to have lived? So that at the last moment, as you're taking your last breath, you could say, I'm glad I lived this life rather than some other life. What would your friends, your unbelieving friends say? Well, most of them would say things like this. That is, the ones that you know, the unbelievers out there, they'd say things like these. Well, I hope not to get divorced more than once because it really hurts. And that would make my life better. And my kids need to do well. If my kids aren't doing well, I really can't call that a good life. And you know, everybody, everybody needs money to make it. And if I could have a good career, in fact, if I could make a lot of money and retire before I get too old to enjoy life, that would be a good thing too. I'd like to do that. That would be a good life. And I know everybody's going to get sick and die, but I just want to die with as little pain as possible. That's a good life. And in fact, the best way to die is in the middle of the night because you don't even know it's going to happen. And then I'll tell you this. If I wake up after I die and I discover there is a God and there is a heaven, I hope he will agree with me that I'm good enough to get in. 
Now that's a good life. Do you realize that's where most of your unbelieving friends and neighbors are? That's their greatest hope, their greatest dream, that they'll make it through life and maybe if they wake up there is a God and there is a heaven that that God will agree that they were good enough to get in. If that's where you are today, I have some sad news for you. You're not good enough. Nobody's ever been good enough except for one. His name was Jesus. And you, but you, even today, can go from hoping that there might be a God and there might be a way to get into heaven, maybe, to knowing there is a God and knowing that you are going to go to heaven. All you have to do is come to Jesus. It's really not that difficult. But that's where most unbelievers are, the ones that we know anyway. But suppose you were to ask the same question of a Christian. Now, I mean a real Christian now. If somebody goes to Bible studies and things like that, goes to church, and you were to ask that person, what would be a good life for you? I mean, the kind of life you would be glad to have lived so that at the last moment, as you're taking your last breath, you could say, I'm glad I lived this life rather than some other life. What would we say? Well, slightly over half of us would say, I hope not to go through another divorce because it really hurts. And I have to tell you, you know, if my children aren't doing well, even Christians say that my life, I couldn't count it as good. And, you know, everybody needs money, so I hope I can get a good career. And if I could just make enough money to retire early, then I could enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy life. That would be good. And even Christians will say, I know I'm going to die, but I want to die with just as little pain as possible. And even followers of Jesus will say, the best way to die is in the middle of the night because you don't know what's going to happen. I think that's the worst way to die. I have the desire to have a two-minute warning. (laughs) Okay, I've got some things to say, okay? And I've been told that somebody will pull out their cell phone and record what I have to say on my last dying breath. That's what I want. Two minutes, please, Lord. I can't imagine a worse way to die than in the middle of the night. But anyway, however you want to die, you die, but that's where the story changes for you and me, right? Because we believe in Jesus. We know that when we die, our souls will begin to shake like this and sparkle perhaps and sprout wings on them and we'll fly away to heaven. And when we get to heaven, St. Peter will see us and he'll say, I see the blood of Jesus on you. You are welcome. This is your place. Come on in. And we'll walk through the gates and he'll say, but wait a minute. And he'll run over to the closet and he'll pull off the wall a gigantic golden harp and he'll hand it to you. And he'll say, now you go over there in the choir loft and you start singing and playing that harp forever and forever, and forever, and forever, and forever. I mean, have you ever been in a choir? That sounds more to me like the other side rather than heaven. I mean, 10,000 years, I can go for it, you know, like Amazing Grace says, you know, 10,000 years, I'll keep on singing. Yeah, but forever is a lot longer than 10,000 years. I mean, you're going to have to overdose on celestial Prozac to think that that is bliss. But that's the greatest dream most Christian people have. That they'll spend eternity as disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds, playing harps and singing in choirs. I have great news for you. Jesus did not come to this earth to give you that. Jesus did not die so that you would have a celestial harp. Jesus did not rise from the dead so that you would float around up there in the clouds as a spirit. 
Jesus did not reign over all things so that you would be apart from this planet. And Jesus is not coming back to get you out of this messy place. Jesus came, he died, he resurrected, he ascended into heaven, he's ruling over everything today, and he's coming back to make all things new. What the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. And it will all belong to him. And he will look at those who followed him, those who endured in his service, and he will look at them in the eye and he will say, all of this that belongs to me, it now belongs to you as well. Welcome to my kingdom. And you and I will live in the new heavens and the new earth with him in the bright blazing glory of God forever. That's our hope. That's our dream. Don't settle for anything less than that because that's the vision that will compel you through the rest of your life. Even now, even now in a world that's full of darkness and death, corrupted by sin, even now we get glimpses of what it could mean to be a human being living on this planet. You know what it's like. It's that sunrise that took your breath away. It's when you first fell in love. Do you remember that? It's when you hear that piece of music that just enraptures you. It's those times of joy that you have, those moments of joy that you have that you just cannot put into words. We know what life can be like on this planet from those moments that we have. Now imagine life on this planet. No sin, no corruption, no violence, no hurt, no pain, no suffering, absolutely no shame for anything you ever did. None at all. And it will be yours forever. That's why Jesus put us on a mission to change the world. You know, before Jesus left this planet, he, tell, he told his disciples, go and teach every nation and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to learn everything I've commanded you. And don't worry, I'll be with you right up to the end. Now, you know something? Before Jesus said those words to them, he said this. He said, guys, that's in the Greek, guys. <laughs> guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's what he said. Do you know what that means? It means this man, Jesus, this man, Jesus, was given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's how good he was. He was looking at them and saying, I'm all that. I am all that. It all now belongs to me. Now, if you and I had been Jesus, the next thing that would have come out of our mouths would be this. You sit back and watch the show because it's going to be unbelievable when I do this. But it's not what he said, is it? He didn't say sit back and watch. He said, I'm going to give you the greatest privilege a human being could ever want to have. It's a sure bet. It's going to happen. 
I'm going to guarantee it's going to happen, but I'm giving you a privilege. And here's the privilege. You devote your entire life to bringing that kingdom to this earth with me. The way he put it later on in Matthew 6 was this. Of all the things you could pursue in your life, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. What more honor could you possibly want than to be on that kind of mission? Yeah, I think it's true that when you do a project, a big one, you need a big vision. Don't settle for this little thing of depending more on God, finding personal forgiveness of your sins, and doing better tomorrow than you did today. Don't settle for that. Go to the top half of the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember that vision? The vision went like this. Our royal Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. That is why we live. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bless you and we honor you. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you will come upon us because, frankly, we just cannot do this in ourselves. We can hear words like these and we can just decide we're going to try and then fail, utterly fail. So, Holy Spirit, our prayer is a simple one. We want to ask you now, please make us like Jesus, that we may serve your kingdom with all of our hearts and see it come to earth as it is in heaven. Amen.